Hello and welcome back to another series of History Pop where we examine the intersection of pop culture and history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and I am so pleased to bring us all back in for our second series on the uh, PBS Masterpiece series, Victoria. In this series, we'll be examining a bit of the history of the show, as in, like, the making of it, its inspiration, etc., 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 some actual Victorian history, how that history is portrayed in the show, and then a little bit of interrogating the representations of those events that are in the show. So just as a reminder, as always, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. Right now, as of the recording of this podcast in the fall of 2019, three series of Victoria have aired. The first season uh, starts at the beginning of Victoria's reign and ends when she has her first child, Vicky, in 1840. The second season begins right after Vicky's birth and then ends in the Christmas of 1846. The third and current series does a bit of a time slide to 1848 after she becomes pregnant with her sixth child and finishes up just after the Great Exhibition of 1851 opens. So, by my math, and I'm a historian, not a mathematician, that is 14 years in the course of three seasons. That's kind of a lot. Over the course of these three seasons, we do see through the beauty of Jenna Coleman's acting skills and the expertise of her makeup and costuming team, Victoria grow older and ease into her role as Queen of the United Kingdom. Throughout, we are introduced to interesting characters, some who are based in historical record, like Victoria and Albert, others who are entirely fictional, like Mr. Penge, the palace steward, or those who are based in historical record but are heavily fictionalized, like Mr. Francatelli, the brilliant chef, Lord Melbourne, her first prime minister, or Victoria's half-sister, Theodora. So, join me for the first episode of our Victoria series, where we will talk a bit about the real-life Victoria, how she came to the throne, and more. Stay tuned. super exciting. I've actually been wanting to do this one for a little while. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about the creation of the show and do almost a historical prologue of sorts. So that way, if you want to watch the show or you've already watched it, you'll have a little bit of a better idea of what was going on just before the series starts. So question, have you ever heard the quote, what's a queen without her king? Historically, more powerful. Also, I'm feeling kind of very posh. I've got my tea ready to go for today, so that's probably one of the reasons I'm being a little bit weirdo with the voices today, but we're going with it. <laughs> anyway, so a queen is historically more powerful without a king. Not untrue. Uh, and that could have actually been easily uh, said about Victoria as much as any of the other regnant queens who I'll talk about here in just a second, uh, like Elizabeth I or II or Anne Stewart. Uh, 
because Elizabeth, actually the first at least, never married, and Anne and uh, Elizabeth II's husbands are prince consorts, basically. We have Prince Philip and Prince George. Uh, Victoria, like Elizabeth and Anne and other Elizabeth, who is on the throne right now, are regnant queens, which means that they don't derive their right to rule through their marriage, but through their birthright. Um, so queens regnant, though, are somewhat of a rarity in English and British history, because usually the ruler is a king. And don't mind me sipping my tea. I'm not actually sponsored by Harney and Sons, but if you like tea and you like it to be kind of fancy, but not super unaffordable, go with Harney and Sons. My favorite is Tower of London. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, queen regnants are somewhat more of a rarity because usually the ruler's a king. Uh, and if the king then is regnant, which means he gets his right to rule from his birthright rather than simply through his marriage, uh, then his spouse, his wife, is styled as a queen, so she has the title of a queen, but she's a queen consort. A good example of a consort would be any of Henry VIII's wives, the divorced, beheaded, and died, divorced, beheaded, survived, um, because he's the one with all the power. And uh, so if you think about it, uh, Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, uh, even though she was the daughter of a regnant queen, and a regnant king, uh, who both played consorts to each other, uh, she was a consort queen to her husband, Henry. Now, those parents being Fernando y Isabel, uh, the Catholic majesties who spearheaded the Reconquista of Spain, the expulsion of the Moors and the Jewish peoples, um, Christopher Columbus's expedition to the Americas, and enacted the Inquisition. So, super powerful parents, which made her eminently desirable on the marriage market, at least until Isabel passed away. Uh, but even with that, and having grown up with those examples, Catalina, or Catherine, was a consort to Henry. So she didn't have that birthright to rule, whereas her eventually her sister Juana did, actually got to be uh, queen of Castile after their mother's death. But anyway, Victoria is something special in the history of the British monarchy, made even more so special by the length of her reign. At the time of her death in 1901, and for some reason that always had boggled my mind until I'd started studying a little bit more about Victoria, is that she didn't just live in the 19th century or the 1800s, she made it to 1901. Uh, at the time of her death, she was the longest reigning British monarch of all time. She'd occupied the throne for over 63 years and had seen many societal, scientific, technological, and just geographic changes. Her reign was one of incredible change. She saw the invention and international adoption of the telegraph, electric lighting installed in the royal palaces, and coast-to-coast -coast railroad networks. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> real word what the world is a real word real road networks in addition to the multitude of factories that popped up throughout her realms and the explosion in popular literature uh the penny dreadfuls the serialization of novels uh, written by like charles dickens or sir arthur conan doyle but all was not well in the empire 
There was a population boom at the time, and especially in larger cities like London, not enough affordable housing for everyone. Areas of these larger cities became slums, and as soon as any member of a family was old enough to work, which is young at the time especially, only about half of the children between ages 5 and 15 were in school, and children as young as 9 worked what would be considered full-time hours today, and that was after several acts had been passed in Parliament which limited child labor hours. So there were also organizations, though, that acted to try and help these poor souls who were caught up in the Industrial Revolution. Most notably, the Society for Improving the Condition of the Labor Classes. Now, I feel like because everything is capitalized there, we need to say it with a British accent. Very Queen Victoria accent. Uh, most notably, the Society for Improving the Condition of the Labor Classes, which Prince Albert, that was better, uh, was the president of we do actually get to see a bit of Albert's dedication to helping the lower classes in the show, but that'll be in the next episode or the third episode, depending on when that falls. Uh, but today, though, I want to talk a bit about the show itself and some of the major historical events that it depicts overarching the course of the series. So the creator of the show is Daisy Goodwin. She's an author from England. If you look at her bio on Wikipedia, it says that she read in history at Cambridge, which can mean that she started a degree but didn't finish it. It's one of those Britishisms that doesn't really translate well to American English, but it does look like that she did get her degree in history from Cambridge, and she went on to find success at the Columbia Film School making documentaries. And while she was writing a novel that was set in the 1870s, which is during Victoria's reign, Goodwin looked to Victoria's numerous diaries for inspiration and ended up being enthralled by the Queen herself. Young Victoria isn't seen as much in uh, pop culture as older frumpy Victoria of the we are not amused sort of fame. So from looking at her diaries from when she was a teenager, Goodwin wanted to be able to tell the story of the feisty, dramatic teen that we see in the first season and show how she grows up into the role of the Queen of the United Kingdom. And then actually, if you are interested in it, there are a group of scholars who have worked really hard to scan and transcribe all of Victoria's diaries all 122 volumes of them. She kept a diary throughout her life, which is a rich source of first-hand primary source information. And it's not often you can read an account of a coronation from the point of view of the person being coronated. If you're in the UK and you're listening to this, good for you! You can see the diaries online for free, which is super nifty. And if you're not in the UK, like me, kind of shucks out of luck, unless your library has access, which mine does not. Luckily, though, there are ways to find bits and bobs of the diaries online. Anywho, the story of how Victoria came to the throne is one of, well, sheer desperation and an odd race to secure the succession between brothers. So this goes all the way back to the reign of George III, who reigned from 1760 to 1820. Uh... George was the king during the American, French, and Haitian revolutions, and honestly, if you actually got to talk to him, probably a pretty decent guy. Uh, after the American colonies had formally separated, he told John Adams, the second president, that, quote, I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power, end quote. 
So he had bouts of mental illness where he wasn't capable of ruling as king. And for a while, he, his queen, and his ministers were able to muddle through, but that didn't last forever. And historians do have theories about uh, what it was that he was actually suffering from, but no one can really know because there wasn't a doctor from modern day able to go back and diagnose him. So, uh, but regardless... One of the things that uh, ministers and the government sought to do at the time was to establish a regency. So that way, good old George would be able to retire from his public duties as king and have someone else step in to be able to take care of things for him. Uh, so they actually were going to ask his son to be able to step in, uh, which was optimistic. George's son, also confusingly named George, there were four Georges on the throne in succession. George, one, two, three, and four. Georg uh, was now George, who was going to step in and be George IV, older George's son, uh, was mentally stable where his father was not. He didn't have the same moral sensibilities as his father. George III never took a mistress and tried to live a devout life of service and duty. And this was pretty much almost exactly the opposite of Prince Regent George who would go on to be George IV. When older George, George III, was still alive, he was technically the king, so his son's period of rule during his life is called the Regency period. A Regency, like I mentioned before, is when someone else takes over the duties of the monarch, who, for some reason or another, is not capable of ruling themselves. Usually, it's because they're a kid and their mom is regent until they're old enough to rule on their own, or there's council or something else like that. So, older George, George III, began to suffer from periods when he was incapable of governing and eventually also became a risk to his own safety. Uh, he'd realized something was going on and prorogued Parliament, which means to put it on pause, uh, to hopefully give himself enough time to recover before he would need to attend to the business of ruling. However, though, when uh, Parliament is prorogued or ended and needs to come back and begin business again, they need to have a state opening of Parliament. And to do that, you need a king or queen, depending on who is the sovereign of the times, speech. Uh, but this, though, left uh, Parliament at the time in a little bit of a pickle because he'd prorogued Parliament, but then wasn't able to give a king's speech when they were ready to come back and get to the business of legislation. So with older George, George III, unable to give the king's speech, Parliament turned to his oldest son, George IV, to take over. MPs debated about the stipulations of the Regency Bill, but they're unable to make it law without the consent of the king, which, of course, he wasn't able to give at that point in time. Because one of the things you need to be able to make things into law is to affix the Great Seal, a literal big wax seal, onto the paper copy of the bill, which is only done with the consent of the king. Uh, so the MPs did what they had to do, because they were kind of caught in a catch-22. They needed to be able to have the consent of the king to put the regency into place, but they couldn't get the consent of the king because they needed a regent. <laughs> uh, so what they did was they told the keeper of the great seal, which is not the king, but the Lord Chancellor, to just put the seal on without the king's consent and they'd deal with the consequences. It was very much a high stakes case of uh, ask for forgiveness rather than permission. To them, the ends justified the means. It was more important that they have some semblance of governance than it was to follow the rule of established law. 
But it all did work out for them, though, uh, as they were able to, before they were able to pass the bill in the illegally open parliament, the king recovered enough to give them the go-ahead on the regency. He's like, yeah, this is a really good idea. Uh, so what does all of this have to do with Victoria? Well, with George III stepping away from the throne, his son George IV stepped up. Now, this George was, as I've mentioned, nothing really at all like his dad. Whereas George III had a loving and faithful marriage, uh, he actually never took any mistresses and tried to live abstemiously, uh, George IV honestly hated the crap out of his wife. She also hated him. They slept together, I think it was like three or four times total, just enough to get her pregnant to have a child. And this child ended up being a girl, Charlotte, Prince of, Princess of Wales. Uh, Charlotte was popular with the British people, well-loved by her grandfather, George III. Uh, she was a willful young lady who, quote, only learned what she wanted uh, from her lessons. She loved music and horseback riding, and she was seen as the hope of the nation. Uh, and when she married Leopold of saxe coburg Saulfield, uh, the nation rejoiced. He was seen as actually kind of a moderating influence on her. He helped to calm her down when she would become too excitable, and their popularity together was even greater than hers before they wed. So as much as people are kind of, you know, muddling through dealing with the regency period of George IV, they are really excited for the prospect of Charlotte and Leopold to be able to come to the throne. But uh, the people got to be super excited when she became pregnant. Uh, but this ended in tragedy because after she gave birth to a stillborn son, after 50 hours of labor, she died shortly afterward herself. So George IV had no other legitimate children besides Charlotte. Uh you know, because on account of him hating his wife and she hating him and him spending all of his time down in his pleasure palace in Brighton with his mistress. But that's beside the point. So George IV doesn't have any other kids who can inherit the throne. What are you to do? Well, in case of mainline primogeniture, which basically means the oldest son gets to inherit everything, uh, and then if something happens to the oldest son, then it goes to the next oldest son, and then the next oldest son, and then the next oldest son. Um, and if one of those sons has a child, then it goes to them. But uh, because George IV's only legitimate child and grandchild uh, had been dead, they needed to kind of go back up the family line back to George III and come down to the next oldest child. Now, because, uh, partly because of his happy marriage, George III had many, many children who actually survived to adulthood. So there's plenty of sons to choose from. Uh, so the next oldest brother, after George IV, is a man named William, who would eventually go on to become William IV on the death of George IV. But much like George IV at the time, William IV and his younger brothers, none of them <laughs> had any legitimate children. Uh, so there's kind of a crisis here. You have plenty of children from George III, but none of them had any legitimate children to be able to pass the throne on to after them. Uh, now, William IV had a ton of illegitimate children, but none of them, of course, could inherit the throne. William's next older brother, Edward, didn't have any children at the time of Charlotte's death, and neither did the next oldest brother, Ernst. The next oldest after that, Augustus, 
did have two children who had been legitimate at their birth, but his marriage to Lady Augusta Murray had been annulled because they didn't have the consent of the sovereign. Uh, that was an act that George III actually had put into law that stipulated that if you were in the royal family, you had to have the consent of the sovereign to be married. And this actually does come back if you watch The Crown, uh, Princess Margaret trying to marry. Uh, so this does have real-life consequences. And so also because of that, uh, Augustus's children at the time were then delegitimated and bastardized. So then there was a kind of race then uh, between Edward, Ernst, and Adolphus, and William actually as well, to marry with the consent of the sovereign, who is still at this time George III, and have legitimate children. Uh, not only would they then be able to help secure the succession, hopefully then Parliament would kind of pay off their debts if they managed to do this duty for their country. Um, so Adolphus, uh, the youngest, ended up marrying Augustus, Princess of Hesse-Kessel, and they had a son in March of 1819. Uh, so they had a child first, but he was one of the younger brothers. Uh, and Ernst married uh, Frederica of Mecklenburg-Strelitz, and they had a son in late May 1819. So good job, guys! But neither of them was to inherit as Edward, who was older than the two of them. Uh, next oldest after William IV, managed to marry well to uh, Princess Victoire of saxe coburg salfield um, she had actually already been married and given birth before she was a widow, um, and they actually had a legitimate child together. Now, if that family name, Saxa Coburg Saulfield, sounds slightly familiar, it's because she was Leopold's older sister, the Leopold that married Princess Charlotte. Now, Edward was so proud of his daughter and, uh, the, the marriage that produced her. Uh, he loved his little Alexandrina Victoria and would show her off any chance he got. Uh, his happiness at having a new wife who he fell deeply in love with and having a, quote, plump, pretty princess born so quickly after the marriage led to other people's frustration, especially the prince regent, who is George IV. Uh, he was in charge of the girl's christening uh, because he was the one who was in charge of the country and she's a member of the royal family. Um, and as custom, her godparents would give her her name rather than her parents. And as Kate Williams, royal historian, put it, uh, George, upset that it was Edward who had managed to have a child to secure the succession, attempted to ruin the christening. He, quote, refused to allow the child to bear the names associated with queens such as Charlotte or Augusta, and indeed the feminized version of his own name, Georgiana. Instead, on the actual day, the Archbishop of Canterbury stood with the child over the font, waiting for the Prince Regent to inform him of her name. God, I can only imagine how awkward of a moment that would have been, just like holding the kid up above the font, being like, okay, what are we doing here? Uh, but finally, the Regent spat out, give her the mother's name. Her first name then was Alexandrina, after the Tsar. Even the Regent dared not to anger the Russian ruler by refusing it. But she quickly became known by her middle name, Victoria. Regardless, Edward was so proud of his baby girl. Things weren't well in his household, though, and he was heavily in debt. 
to borrow from the historian Lucy Worsley, quote, he had terrible debts caused partly by an expensive refurbishment of his apartments at Kensington. In the winter of 1819 to 1820, he tried to save money by taking his beloved wife and baby daughter to live cheaply in a rented holiday house out of season at Sidmouth in Devon. Sadly, Edward died of pneumonia not long after his baby girl was born. It was about eight months later and probably caused by being at this cold little house. <laughs> um, but after his death, Alexandrina was raised by her mother in Kensington Palace. Uh, Edward's will stipulated that Victoire, the mother, was to raise her instead of making her a ward of the monarch. And more importantly, if Alexandrina ascended the throne as a minor, Victoire would serve as her regent until she came of age. At Kensington, the young Alexandrina was kept behind gates and walls to keep her away from other children who may have carried diseases or others with nefarious intentions towards the young girl. Uh, it was called the Kensington system. To borrow again from Worsley, the fact that she was rarely seen at court distanced her in people's minds from the unpopular regime of her uncles. She'd remain untainted by association with them. So there were some good things that came from this Kensington system and some really damaging things. Uh, in the show, Victoria doesn't hide at all that she was lonely at Kensington and that she chafed against her mother's rules, which, to be fair, were really strict. Like, super strict. Like, she slept in her mom's room every night and she was never, ever left alone. Uh, she was made to hold someone's hand as she walked down the stairs every single time. She had to record her day's choices in her behavior book, where she'd write how she'd either obeyed or disobeyed her mother and her mother's close friend and assistant, John Conroy. But one of the things that the show doesn't show us until much later is that she wasn't alone all the time, just talking with her dolls. She spent much of her time with her older half-sister, Theodora, with whom she had a loving and devoted relationship. Theodora stayed with Victoria until she uh, married and moved back to Germany in 1828. Uh, Victoria and Theodora's older brother, Carl, who was there when Victoria was born, uh, was uh, ruler of the Principality of Leiningen, and in 1829, he married Countess Maria Klebelsberg and moved back to Germany as well. Uh, after the revolutions of 1848, he actually served as uh, Germany's first prime minister in the Provoisisches Central Gewalt. As time moved on, and the young girl, who was called Drina sometimes by her mother, but more widely known as Victoria, moved closer and closer to the throne through the unfortunate deaths of her cousins uh, and her uncle, the un her that same uncle, the king, George IV, who had unpleasantly attended her baptism and named her Alexandrina, realized that the girl was going to be Queen of England uh, someday sooner rather than later and tried to get her mother then to change her name to a more English or queenly name, like Elizabeth Charlotte, as Victoria was seen as a super French and kind of made-up name. Victoire, her mother, did not change her name, and then her daughter came to the throne as Victoria. After George IV died, William IV made a personal vow to survive until the girl's 18th birthday, so that the crown's power would pass directly to her instead of her mother and Conroy in a regency. He actually managed to do so, and lasted a couple more months after that. The first thing that Victoria did after being informed that she was queen was to ask for some time alone, which she got for the first time in her life. The show does a really good job of showing how toxic Conroy's influence was for Victoria growing up and her mother's ill-informed best attempt at raising her daughter. 
Other historians who have done more work on Victoria paint her mother as a deliberately malign influence who only sought her own power and prestige with Conroy at her side, but I would need to do more research to either agree or disagree with them. Uh, if you are interested in this, I would recommend reading the works of the two historians who I relied on in making this, Lucy Worsley and Kate Williams, both of whom are brilliant, whose work is approachable and extremely well-researched. And... That's it for today, folks. Join me next time in the next episode of History Pop, where we explore some of the historical events that inspired uh, parts of the episodes of the show, uh, some of the characters in it. And I'm sorry if you haven't seen it and things get spoiled for you. I tried not to do that with this one, but as one of my advisors is fond of saying, there are no spoilers in history. So with that, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day and uh, that you stay tuned for the next episode of History Pop Victoria. Let's work on making every day better than the last. Live long and prosper. Catch you later. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit.